Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. Today, we will be getting a little spicy as we get into the history of bachelorette and bachelor parties. As many of you know, 2023 is Wedding Central Station here on APT because your host, yours truly, Gianna, and boy of APT, Vibin Thavananam, are getting married. But before the wedding, there's the batch. So let's party. Hello, hello, Bianca. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Getting- freeze- I'm freezing my butt off over here in Boston this weekend, but yeah. other than that... Yeah, I uh, I was laughing because so I worked from home all this week because Oklahoma got hit with that just a little bit of that ice storm. I know Texas got hit like way heavier. It wasn't nearly as bad here, but just due to like our lack of four wheel drive in Oklahoma, everything <laughs> kind of shuts down. So I was working from home and I had uh, an evening meeting for work and I was laughing because I felt like way overdressed for this meeting but I was like I don't know I was just happy to like put on clothes I guess so <laughs> everyone was like oh my like Gianni you look so great I was like well you know like haven't really worn like human clothes this week so I just thought I'd make an effort and I'm actually wearing the same sweater right now like I've been wearing the same sweater this entire week I feel like it's just been like my work from home sweater because if I wear like a sports bra or like no bra, I feel like you can't really, you know, it's it's yeah. all fine. It it covers all of the basis. So during the winter, during the summer, it's a little bit different because my tops are like a little bit lighter. But in the winter, the girlfriend collective bralettes have really been a game changer in the work from mm. home. Like I can just wear those all day under a sweater and it's great. And then I invested recently in some very tall sweatpants and so you know it's it's really changed the the work from home outfit game that's great i i always need to up my loungewear and my activewear game and i feel like i have been catfished like the past several times i've bought something from the target athleisure section like oh. i'm actually wearing these pants right now and i bought them this is all going to tie together, guys. This is segueing into Bachelorette content. I bought them because they're white. And I was like, oh, this is cute. I'm going to be like white, sporty spice on the Bachelorette trip. And I'm going to buy these white pants. And they're going to be so cute. <laughs> you foolish of me. So I bought these white pants. It was also before I went to Malaysia. And so I wore them on the airplane. And Theban was like seriously worried that they were cutting off my circulation because I'm too tall. So when I sit down, they have cuffs on the bottom around the ankle, but they like ride up to like my calf. And so I'm like- I'm sorry, these are sweatpants? They're like, they're like joggers. And they were so tight. They were cutting off your They're like, I don't know. And I thought they'd be nice because- what? They, I don't know how to like explain it. So like the bottoms are like cuffed and it's got like two layers too. So it's nice because yeah. it's like, you know, keeps it's you like thick. warm in the winter, yeah. cool in the summer type dealio. But I don't know. They're just like, they're too tight on the bottom when I sit down because I'm too damn tall. And then all of a sudden, I don't know, they're already like stained or something. And like they, right now, like this weekend, I have to go bleach them because I don't know 
what this like random like black mark it's literally i'm never buying like white athleisure wear like ever again it's been a nightmare i just wanted to be like like the cool comfy like cozy kind of girl look at the airport (laughs) instead of these like fucking fans from target are cutting off my (laughs) circulation and have barely lasted two months so i don't know this is a psa like has anyone else been catfished by the target athleisure wear section i'm just that's very interesting i don't know i did buy a pair of lounge pants for the bachelorette party and and last night too i was shopping because i was like i need a cute outfit for a hike i yeah it's just it might not happen so i i really tried and listen i don't january just takes a lot out of me in general and so i just barely made it out alive and so if i you know make it to the bachelor party that'll that'll just be a win so you know if i look cute that's just that's a plus no, I'm I'm super excited. We will get into more Bachelorette party content here shortly, but I feel like there's also been a lot of other stuff going on the past week. Yes. So we have a rather lengthy art news story for today's episode, but there was a lot of art news that happened over the past several weeks. Bianca tuned in for a live auction stream of the Sotheby's Masters painting. Like yeah, it week, was extravaganza. Tell us extravaganza. about it. Extravaganza. So we've had Daria Foner on our show before. If you'll recall, she talked about all about her uh, past experience at the Morgan Library, uh, working on research for Bell Green. And if you will recall, she now works at Sotheby's in the old master's department. And this past week, they had their live auction. So uh, there was a fascinating YouTube live stream of the show, of the show, <laughs> like I was like, tuned in, <laughs> of the auction. And it literally was so interesting. It really was like a reality show. I would die to have a reality show of like the ins and outs of auction houses, Ooh. Real Housewives of Sotheby's. You know, also, I feel like I'm going to get into this get into this in a little bit but there's been so much um satire in terms of like art history and history content that I feel like there needs to be some kind of satire involved with like auction houses oh my god 100% no I feel like a show about this would be amazing like I Andrew and I started watching the bear because it you know it's been up for nominations all the stuff like the the inner workings of uh kitchen and I think the inner workings of an auction house or the inner workings of our world, I'm sorry, it's long overdue. You know, we have Abbott Elementary, we have the office, we've got Parks and Rec, we've got government work. Where's the, where's the museum? I know. Where's I, the I think auction they're house? doing some like kind of, you know, mockumentary type, you know, office thing about like a car dealership. And I'm like, where's my auction house? Where's my museum? Like they no, just truly, Bianca, they just did on uh, CBS Saturday they, uh, this morning they just did this segment about this kind of like conspiracy theory ish about how the Natural History Museum in New York dumped woolly mammoth bones in the East River because they simply didn't have enough space for them. And I mean, like, how how fantastic would that be if there was like a mockumentary office Parks and Rec esque 
show that took place in the Natural History Museum and your Michael totally Scott character went yeah, diving in the East River. <laughs> like, no, I can picture like Andy Dwyer just like dumping bones in the river. <laughs> like, that sounds amazing. Like, and I want Daria Foner to lead the charge because first of all, she was looking fucking fabulous on the screen. Let me tell you, the the outfit game was on fire and oh that was partly why I was like, holy shit, like these people look incredible. Like, <laughs> talking on the phone to the people who were buying the pieces and it was just like I want like a side cut to where ooh we get the other person like we don't know who it is yet but then we get to hear their voice like on the phone like bit this much bit this much and then we get like another cut to the other person who's on the phone but like the the competing because there were some times when I'm watching the auction and there are like two people who you can't see they're not in the audience but they're on the phone like calling in mm-hmm. and it's like back and forth and then the the auctioneer is like okay like 150,000 here, 160,000, 180,000, 190,000. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, <laughs> I mean, the suspense is truly so exciting. And I've never really sat down to watch a whole kind of auction before. Normally I just get that, you know, the highlights afterwards and what is the biggest thing that sold. But it was so exciting to watch. I was like, I've got to fucking produce this show. Oh my well, God. I will say, obviously, I've never worked for um, an auction house that is, you know, selling works of art. But since I work in philanthropy, I've worked two live auctions fundraisers, and I'll be uh, doing my next one in April. And I feel like there's nothing that stresses me out more than a live auction. (laughs) Like, even though, like... there, there's just something about the intensity, the auctioneer having to be a runner to make sure that you're aware of the price, who's the bidder going up to them. You basically have to have them like sign a contract like in the moment that basically says like you have consented to this purchase and like you have to like follow through with this. It's honestly um, like it, it stresses me out. Like I do not blink the entire time. It is also kind of like a Downton Abbey situation where you have the people who are like working behind the scenes, like working their asses off. And then you just have these people come in, like these (laughs) money bags, like spending all this fucking dough. Like it's – I just – I need this to happen. I know we have a few people in our uh, APT fam who work for auction houses and uh, Gianna and I are like all over this. We definitely want to have like more conversations about auctions in the art market. But I just – I'm watching this like, oh my God, this is so exciting. You know who loves live auctions is mom because I was telling her like how much it like in the moment it stresses me out. Like it's really, you know, fun to be a part of and put on. But in the moment when you're like responsible, like for the event, I'm like, mom, I'm like, this is stressful. And I'm like, you know, telling her about my work life. And she's like, I love live auctions. It's so you know, great. The other thing about, <laughs> about watching this was they were – there were pieces that sold for like a fuck ton of money, right? But there were other ones that only sold for like, I don't know. Some of them may have been, I think some of them were under $100,000. And when they were like $60,000, so I was like, I got $60,000. I'm to call up Daria. I was like, there was something about like, the, it is like, truly an exorbitant amount of money that these people were spending and that's you know it was it was great to to watch and see like what went for different prices and like what ended up going to like a bidding war but when one thing would come up that was here's the starting price it only had like a couple bids or whatever 
I was like, why is this number so low? Because the other ones were got so high. Mm. But then when a low one came in, I was like, I can afford, like, I can buy that. <laughs> there was just like a part of me that was like, there was this odd facade that was put on because some of the prices were so extreme, like very yeah. high, high, and then like not low lows, but they were low compared. Like I, I could technically buy that. However, I would have nothing left. <laughs> right, like I, I could, I could do it, and that kind of me feel about myself. I was like. Well, I can do this. <laughs> and then it reminded me of that iconic scene in Tomb Raider where she goes to the auction and she waves at her friend and then she like tries to get out of the bid. Do you know? <laughs> okay. Do you know what I always think about is what is that? There's that con artist movie with Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver. And the girl from, what is it? Like Ghost or she like can see Ghost? Demi Moore? Okay, it's called Heartbreakers, and it was that movie that was, like, always on TV on, like, the weekends, and so I just watch it. It's, yeah, pay- it's a mother-daughter duo. Yeah, okay, it's Jennifer Love Hewitt. What was Jennifer she in? Love she was in, some- she was in um, Ghost Whisperer. Ghost Whisperer, yes. And so it, they are, like, conning this, like, you know, like old, the old man, rich man, and yes. so Sigourney Weaver accidentally ends up buying this, like, statue. <laughs> Yeah. And so she has to like trick them into like breaking it so she doesn't have to buy yes. it. Oh my god. It's so funny. Oh my gosh. So um that's hilarious. Anyways, I that's an excellent movie. You know, for really like the is. early two thousands, like nineties kids who were like home during the weekends, you know, watching oh, that, you know, Saturday midday show, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so the auction, so the bees auction was uh was a really exciting thing that happened to me this past week and and to Daria and everyone who worked like really hard on these auctions and for the people who bought all this work because like that was cool um congratulations okay, well, to them APT auction house satire screenplay coming your way holy shit oh soon <laughs> so we also had the Scaparelli Hawk Tour summer show with these faux taxidermy looks we had Kylie Jenner coming in with this Hot girl, rich girl energy wearing one of the faux taxidermy uh, lion outfits that debuted on the runway. So I just cannot, cannot wrap my head around that amount of wealth and influence that she was sporting that look. I think just the work too. Like they had to make so many of those for people to wear in the audience and then wear on the runway. It was pretty incredible. So all of the faux taxidermy looks mostly the ones that i saw were lions i think there were some other like big there was like some cats. jaguars and like leopards right so they were all handmade as is most of as is most of as is all of you know <laughs> these um hakator scaparelli looks with you know their handmade jewelry so it just kind of followed that vein of everything they do and how it's so sculptural which is why we just love them so much but Bianca, I just could not help but think what Foster's hot takes were on these looks. And I feel as though you reach out to him. I did. Well, I saw Gianna's comments here in our document and it just says, I really want to hear Foster's hot takes. And I was like, I'm going to make that happen for you, girl. And so I Snapchatted him. And first of all, he he responded and was like, yeah, I I saw something about these... uh, costumes or whatever. <laughs> I love him. 
and it was just the cutest thing in the entire world. Like it made me laugh so much that he was like, "Yeah, these costumes." I mean, he's not wrong. Like, he's not wrong. It was just like so funny. I was like, "Yes, good <laughs> yes." But yeah, okay. Also, um, just so everyone remembers, Foster W. Krupp is our taxidermy specialist here on ABT. If you uh, haven't listened to his conversation yet, be sure to do so. Um, but he was very, his overall take was how it was very impressive how far faux taxidermy has come because there was a time when you could very easily tell that uh, a a taxidermy specimen was in fact fake mm. and so just the fact that it's it's really interesting because you would think like art and sculpture in itself is so far developed you know like if if we had the statue of david you know mm-hmm. premiere 500 years ago or whatever then how is it that we struggled to make taxidermy models i suppose like it just it just seems interesting that his first take was wow like faux taxidermy has really come far in it in just like a sculptural and artistic sense how someone was able to design them because they they just looked incredible i mean it that's so interesting too because what we also spoke about with foster in our taxidermy episode was just how taxidermy in general has come a really long way because it the the only like real part that i think is different with faux taxidermy in terms of my understanding of like modern day practices is really that skin right and that fur Mm -hmm. some armatures used to use like the bones to make the armature but my understanding is that that's not really how that practice is done anymore so that armature and those processes are very similar if not the same and it was really interesting for me because in college, my sculpture professor worked with the animal form and she was always making these really interesting armatures, um, you know, kind of welding the internal structure and then building with like foam and other synthetic material on top of that. Mm-hmm. And if you go to Scaparelli's Instagram, you can kind of see some of the behind the scenes right now of how they mm-hmm. built um, out those armatures for the lion. And it's just really interesting. But you know, it also comes up on my TikTok now too. There is this, you know, woman that mainly does deer taxidermy and, you know, I see the armatures and they look, you know, it's just, it's an, it's a very interesting process. And although I fear it, I am like, (laughs) I am finding this fascination with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it was just, I mean, it was just super interesting. And, uh, he said he's not the biggest fan of people wearing animals. He just said it seems like a little bit weird, but that he said that wasn't the weirdest thing there. <laughs> what it was the weirdest thing there, in your uh, opinion, Bianca? <laughs> um, honestly, I don't find I just didn't find it that odd. I just I thought it was like extremely impressive. I don't even know that, like for me, Doja Cats appearance was like she was one of the scaparelli faces that we see in their like in their handbags and their jewelry and their earrings like in their regular clothing she just was one of their metalwork pieces like brought to life Mm -hmm. and so i didn't find it weird because it was just so in vain it was like the epitome of what they do instead of instead of forming metal into a body they were like forming this body into metal 
Ooh, that was yummy the way that you said that. I liked that. Does that do like it it does because to me I just thought it was so interesting, just <laughs> particularly because I loved the content of her just also sitting in like the same row as Kylie and just kind of the comparison of their two outfits, like you know, Kylie over here with like this, you know, mountain lion's head and then people saying that Dojo was like a bloody tampon. <laughs> like so to me, just it was interesting that Kylie was sporting one of the looks on the runway, but then Doja was just a standalone. Um, and so I was trying to just figure out, I guess, that outfit and that place and how that placed within the setting and, and the content that, you know, uh, we received for the summer show. So, yeah, I think she was just the epitome of everything that Daniel has been bringing to yeah. the the brand. I liked the, I think the kind of overwhelming presence of the color too was very, it, it was all really nice to also see something that I felt like was kind of different for Scaparelli mm-hmm. too. And I felt like it was this, I don't know, this moment. So I always love to like think about when we like look back on that moment or, you know, five years from now when Doja is doing her little Vogue moment, like her little flip book and like looking back on her looks like that one better be in there. Oh, oh, a hundred percent. That's it. That's an iconic look. And yeah. uh, I hope we see it at the Mecca. <laughs> Do you want to tell everyone what you said to you the other day? We've had so many good ideas in this episode. I'm afraid that people are going to steal them because we need to start working on our screenplay for the mockumentary live auction house um let's start working on our pilot but i bianca and i have talked so much about our affinity for scaparelli and how we just still can't wrap our heads around this particular like glorification of the person chanel and we've talked about on the episode with our, you know, Nazi agent Coco Chanel episode that she notoriously referred to Scaparelli as the Italian. And so I saw... As a derogatory term. I sw- Fucking rude. I <laughs> Rude. Don't I, be fucking rude. <laughs> I am just going to be so, so upset if just it, it's it i'm gonna be livid if scaparelli does not put someone like lady gaga or ariana in a dress that says the italian that is going to be the missed opportunity of our entire lifetime and i just don't know how to phrase it any other way like oh somebody God. needs to to speak about like the history of these like two designers and i need someone to stir the fucking pot Oh my god. And Daniel's the perfect person to do that. Put fucking Gaga in a gorgeous garment with like embroidered jewels, metal that reads the Italian. And I love it because like you know like Chris Jenner is gonna come up sporting like Chanel, like to to the full extent possible. Like she will be shitting pearls that night. And I just I, I need Gaga to like come out with this dress that says the Italian and give everybody the stank eye oh my god but I just like I don't I like it's just about it's it's just about bringing the the history of the person to light and and like it just is unfortunate that Karl Lagerfeld fell in a very uh unflattering vein as far as a a person Mm -hmm. and his personal beliefs 
you know, it's just, it's just, it's all a little icky if you ask it, me. It, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's all quite icky. So, um, so I'm just, that is why I, I will be tuning in them for the Medicaid there. lunch, just so everybody knows. <laughs> Well, this weekend as well, right now we are recording on February 4th, and so we will have um, the Grammys this weekend. Oscar nominations are out. Obviously, Grammy nominations are out, so when we come in for our next episode, we will be recapping a little bit of the Grammys, just giving you guys our hot takes. Uh, Before we get into art news, Bianca, I know that you have not started watching it, but if any of the art pop charts have started watching Chunk on Earth, please slide into my DMs because I I just finished watching the first episode and I am thoroughly enjoying it. All right, so there has been a lot of coverage on this art news story, but coming at you from the New York Times is the article that I found most helpful to reference a story. So, frenzied commuters in New York's Flatiron District have stopped in their tracks in recent days by an unlikely apparition near Moses, Confucius, and Zoroaster. Standing atop the grandiose state courthouse is a shimmering golden eight-foot female sculpture emerging from a pink lotus flower and wearing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's signature lace collar. Staring regally ahead with her hair braided like spiraling horns, the sculpture, installed as part of an exhibition that opened later that week, is the first female to adorn one of the courthouse's ten plinths, dominated for more than a century by now weathered statues representing great lawgivers throughout the ages, all of them men. Shaiza Sikander, the paradigm-busting Pakistani-American artist behind the work, said the sculpture was part of an urgent and necessary cultural reckoning underway as New York, along with cities around the world, reconsidered traditional representations of power and public spaces and recast civic structures to better reflect 21st century social mores. Coming from her artist statement from her website, Sikander says that she is a citizen of the world. Over the course of three decades, Sikander has developed a multimedia practice that embraces the production of compelling objects that practically and theoretically transcend borders. Her meaningful artistic and social collaborations probe contested histories of colonialism, mechanisms of power, notions of language, and migration. Sikander is internationally renowned for a pioneering practice that takes classical Indo-Persian miniature paintings as its point of departure and inflex it with contemporary South Asian American feminist and Muslim perspectives. Going back to the New York Times article, Sikander describes the sculpture as, quote, a fierce woman and a form of resistance in a space that has historically been dominated by patriarchal representation. She also says that the work is called Now because it was needed now at a time when women's reproductive rights were under siege after the U.S. Supreme Court in June overturned the constitutional right to abortion. It is not the first time this court, the Appellate Division First Judicial Department of the New York State Supreme Court, has changed the lineup of figures presiding over the rooftop. In 1955, the court removed a turn-of-the-century eight-foot-tall marble statue of the Prophet Muhammad when Pakistani, Egyptian, and Indonesian 
embassies asked the State Department to intervene. Many Muslims have deeply held religious beliefs that prohibit depictions of the Prophet. To compensate for the visual gap left at the commanding southwest corner of the building, seven statues were shifted one pedestal westward, leaving Zoaster in place of Muhammad. The eastmost pedestal, once occupied by Justinian, was left vacant. That is where Sikander's sculpture presides now. Sikander emphasizes that Muhammad's removal and her installation were completely unrelated, quote, saying, my figure is not replacing anyone or canceling anyone. Much as Justice Ginsburg wore her lace collar to recast a historically male uniform and proudly reclaim it for her gender, Sikander said her stylized sculpture was aimed at feminizing a building that was commissioned in 1896. The now sculpture is actually in dialogue with another 18-foot sculpture of the powerful woman by Sikander, also called Witness, and is adjacent Madison Square Park. Sikander said that the sculpture wore a hoop skirt inspired by the stained glass dome of the courthouse, symbolizing the need to, quote, break the legal glass ceiling. The dome concept is important. While the courthouse has allegorical female figures, no actual figures of female judges or justices have previously existed outside or inside of the courthouse. Only one woman, Betty Weinberg Ellerin, a trailblazing judge and the first woman to be appointed presiding justice of the Appellate Division, was named on the courtroom's ornate stained glass ceiling dome on a section honoring those who had held the position. One of those names on the dome also includes Roger Brooke Taney, the U.S. Supreme Court Justice, who wrote the racist Dred Scott decision, which ruled that African Americans were not and could not be citizens. Justice Diane T. Renwick, the first Black female justice at the Appalachian Division, First Department, who chairs the committee examining issues of diversity, said that in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in 2020, the court had undertaken a long overdue effort to address gender and racial bias since the courthouse had been built at a time when women and people of color were erased and overlooked. She and other justices want Tanning's name removed from the dome and said that talks were underway to expunge his name and potentially place it in the court's library with an explanatory note describing his role in American history. Quote, the fact that his name is in the dome is outrageous, said Justice Renwick. We don't want to erase the art. We want to contextualize it. So there is a lot more uh, to this article. We will link it for you if you'd like to read into it further. It does have some really great visuals um, that you can reference. I like that it also shows the internal architecture of the courthouse because you can really see in the uh, sculpture witness how it also has these really beautiful graphic details that reflect that stained glass. But otherwise, they look very similar in this almost female goddess character of sorts that she's created seems to be replicated a lot uh, throughout her body of work. Yeah, this is really beautiful. I I really like it. And I also keep thinking about uh, this point that the artist makes talking about how uh, female figures in history are these like allegorical figures. Our figure of justice is a woman carrying, you know, two scales so many of our, uh, I guess I will call them, well, I don't know what to call them, 
liberties, I want to say, but that is probably not the right word, are, uh, are, are characterized by female figures yet so ignored in systems uh, across the United States and across the globe. But uh, I, I do find it really interesting that she specifically calls that out because I, I, I think she's not wanting to conflate the two. Like we want women in the justice system. Our rights have been taken away. Stop thinking of us as this allegorical figure when you, you know, consistently don't pay us any any attention. Yeah, that's interesting. But it's interesting that she does that by creating an allegorical figure. Right. How do we feel about that? Like, I, I'm kind of, it, it's interesting. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was thinking about that as well, because you know what this reminded me of a little bit was the fearless girl and how mm-hmm. that's been moved so much and how, you know, she was in front of the bowl in New York and then she was facing the what was it the stock exchange building Mm -hmm. and how she i think she's still in front of the stock exchange is she there because she was moved to the bull that was temporary no she was placed in front of the bull at first and then moved in front of the stock exchange and so now she's at the stock exchange permanently i guess i I think so i guess i was just thinking about even this idea of the fearless girl and how she is also this allegorical figure mm-hmm. as well and yeah. how we have been i don't want to say re we have been re- reimagining and also rethinking so much of public art in the past mm-hmm. 2 years that i think is it a problem that we keep creating allegorical figures instead of depicting real women i guess there are women there are women judges there are women in the court there are few but they exist they do and i I guess that's that's why i find this work interesting because she the now sculpture is this like blend of all these kind of historical attributes as well Mm -hmm. as you know the artist's own kind of creation of this allegory um i also so it's interesting because one of the most predominant visuals that she described was um you know the iconic ruth bader ginsburg collar Mm -hmm. so should we stop kind of glorifying people and public works of art together is it easier to kind of create an allegory like do i want a sculpture on top of this courthouse of ruth bader ginsburg because although i love her and appreciate everything that she did for us i also she was also a person and is glorifying people like that also just an issue yeah that's actually really interesting gianna i um i'm not sure where i land on this i i think maybe i'm 50 50 because i think I don't know because I I guess I'm just thinking about like in the future there are things about people's past that we choose to ignore Coco Mm -hmm. Chanel for example like you know she's a part of history her name is a is a living legacy but she had a problematic past in 200 years are these you know figures going to be uncovered in a similar way like our truths about these people so going to be uncovered or you know there are things that 
people do today that will probably not be appropriate in 200 years. Yes. And I think for me, like, you know, there is a human component to, you know, a monument or a statue of a real life person, even though that person had historical significance, there is also that that human moment. And I think when you create a public work of art, something happens where intentionally or unintentionally, like you are encapsulating all of that. And so Mm -hmm. you do have to be very careful, but then also where do I land? Because although, you know, we have all of these historical figures and statues of men, if we don't have any of women. And so then we just end up with the allegory kind of cliche, but I don't like, I don't know where I, I don't know what to do. (laughs) Like, I don't know where I stand. That's how I am feeling. I mean, we can this might be a good segue to bring up the MLK statue in the Boston Common. Yes. So to keep this art news segment going in terms of public works of art, we wanted to speak about artist Hank Willis Thomas's uh, memorial or monument. It has been kind of described as both, which we can talk about, to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., unveiled in the Boston Commons uh, in the Freedom Plaza, and Bianca lives very, very close. Um, to the- but I did not see Kim Kardashian because I was gone that day. Oh, well, then we should just not talk about this story at all then. Uh, so the monument honors the local civil rights figure. It's a 20-foot tall, 40-foot wide bronze sculpture, statue. Sculpture. Question mark. Um, (laughs) That was inspired by a photograph of Dr. King embracing his wife, Coretta Scott King, after winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. So, uh, to kind of describe what's been going on on the internet, this hyperallergic article states that the image of the sculpture on social media has drawn mixed reactions with some praising the artist's design and others wondering about the interpretation of King's legacy, going so far as to accuse the work of resembling a phallus. So uh, some, including members of the King family, applauded the commemoration of the famed civil rights leader who gave a speech in 1964 on the Commons about de facto segregation and unequal schooling. So during the unveiling ceremony, Martin Luther King III said that the monument represents his parents' love for the city and its abolitionist past, and that it memorializes their relationship as well, because the couple met while King attended Boston University School of Theology, and Scott King attended the New England uh, Conservatory of Music. So, Bianca, you have been able to see this in person. So see it quite a bit, yeah. Um, <laughs> So let's share our thoughts. Obviously, it it is very intimate. And although there have been, you know, a lot of jokes and a lot of comments about how this sculpture lends itself to like sexual jokes, my main kind of just thought about it was this is a very intimate moment blown up on such a large scale. And yeah. I and in such a public space that I am just having a hard time kind of wrapping my mind around that. And I, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's the scale of it all. Yeah. I, I, I'm not a fan of it visually. Mm-hmm. I, I'll say that. Um, 
But I do think it's important, obviously, as Gianna uh, read from the article, if you've ever been to Boston or New England, there are a lot of Revolutionary War monuments. Um, so I, I am happy that the Boston Common is incorporating new works into the, the public space. It's America's first public park. It's also one of the first uh, new public works of art that's gone in the common in like over 30 years or something like that. Like the common does not make these installations happen frequently. And it's a very big deal when change is made to the common. Um, so there are, you know, kind of old timey, I suppose, uh, monuments and sculptures depicting, you know, various white male figures from New England's history, uh, kind of all over Boston. So I think that this is a very, very important addition. I am not a fan of the of the rendering of it. But it, that's also interesting because we were just talking about these kind of allegorical figures. And without the faces of Coretta and MLK, there is that almost kind of allegory to it. Like you, you lose the the personhood a little bit in their lack of pro of a profile um so that's also interesting and it, and it kind of boils down to this like you said very intimate moment between two people that's th that seems so physical and because there are these two very iconic historical figures of of the the civil rights era in the united states it, it kind of wipes that away for me and it's interesting because we were just talking about like, well, should we have these figures be commemorated in our public spaces? Should we know who these people are? Should we bring light to them? But then it, in this piece in particular, when that's stripped away, I, I'm just not a, a fan of how it's rendered. Yeah, there was also like uh, a joke about how like we have yet to actually kind of like just encapsulate like a monument that is maybe more straightforward maybe more realistic of mm -hmm. dr martin luther king and how we just kind of keep doing him a little bit dirty and how one of his other monuments you know the joke was like this man marched for freedom and they didn't give him legs in the sculpture <laughs> and it just is painful like it's just it's yeah. It yeah. and I think that like these people that are are so important and that we should have these holistic and 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 kind of fair representations of them in public spaces. I think this one is also very complex. Um, you know, I can't really speak to the ins and outs of their relationship, but mm -hmm. we know that they had a very complex relationship and to again display that on such like a grandiose scale I just in the intimate manner that it is in a very intimate manner that it is I'm just not sure that's why it's also interesting Bianca that this is described as not just a monument but also a memorial mm -hmm. Because I've only experienced this piece as a viewer on my phone through images, I'm getting to see this from all different angles at the same time. I'm getting to see it from an aerial view and to really experience it from 
the actual, you know, physical point of view, I think will be really interesting because I don't really think that you can get the whole, you can, you can't really get the whole picture. It's too big. Yeah. And so I think that also sometimes, sometimes with public works of art, man, I just don't, we really don't think about that sometimes as much as like mm-hmm. we've talked about like the art viewing relationship just sometimes with public art, man, I just feel like we just never, something happens and that one person, that 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 person was supposed to be responsible for that and check off the box. Oh, we didn't think about the viewer. We just skip over that step. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're able to see it in person, Bianca, let us know. Um, oh, I see it all the time. Have you been able to get up close to it? Have you walked yeah. over yet? Okay, yeah. you have. Yeah, okay. I can take some pictures for the for the for our stories. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's just always like our ongoing conversation just about public art. And I don't like just want to leave us with that like public art, man. I know. But I, I feel. I know, I'm just thinking like, is there a right way to do public art? I don't know. Like, are, am I being too picky about like, oh, this is an allegory, but this is too real. And this is, you know, like, is there ever, is there such a a thing as the perfect piece of public art like you're not going to please everybody it's a public space yeah because also to play devil's advocate too and then we can stop talking about this i promise we can get into the bachelor content (laughs) but i am also tired of like boring works of public art and oh it's just like a statue and i'm just gonna this definitely isn't boring i mean i like that it's creating a conversation Mm -hmm. for sure yeah yeah well public art that's that's what we leave you with today (laughs) um now i think we should just like let you sit in silence with that for a little bit and we can take a little break and when we come back we will be talking about bachelorette content the private sector if you will everybody in addition to gianna's batch you know it's also valentine's day coming up so we thought we'd uh spend the rest of this time getting a little spicy heating things up here in apt i hope everyone has a lovely valentine's day uh i would love for all of you to be my valentine oh that's um, nice gianna how excited are you for the bachelorette party it is now two weeks away as we're recording so excited <laughs> i if everyone didn't know this already, which I'm sure you have gathered at this point, I am a spoiled brat, and I've really never felt more spoiled in my life. Bianca, maid of honor over here, is really just been killing it. This is also just thinking of like, you know, spicy and like Valentine's Day. Like Bianca is her love language is like gift giving, <laughs> is very much like doing these types of things like for people and you know you're you're very good at it and you go all in so I am oh I told Gianna this is the role I was born to play it truly is it's kind of like terrifying it's like it's like overwhelming it's like I hope that I receive an academy award for this role I think my role in Gianna's uh bachelorette party is I feel like you're like one of those people that was just like born with like a purpose and like you just like (laughs) 
you, my purpose is planning magic. Or I just you have this like direction I'm a party of like, planner. I'm a party planner. Winona writer. <laughs> I I don't know. Like you just like you you're just good at it, and I don't. I, I don't know how to like it's just you just do a lot and it's just like overwhelming but I appreciate it and I'm excited Sometimes about when we it. talk about wedding stuff I do scare Gianna like by the end of the conversation she's like sunken down into her chair <laughs> like I can barely see her and I'm like I'm not trying to scare you I just need to make a decision I I've been just yeah it's been crippling. You are truly being a, a trooper. You are like the FIBA buffet to my Monica with her headset and clipboard. Like I just Well, I don't really want to give you the headset. I I think Andrew asked me if I was gonna wear a headset to your wedding. I said I might. <laughs> the intensity is real, but you're doing a fantastic job. Like Hey, I'm just trying I'm we're 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 making moves. Yeah, I I think that's a perfect way, yeah, to describe it. It's it's very much like Monica Geller organization <laughs> central over here. I've got a little bit of like Rachel Phoebe energy that's just kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I'm so excited. We'll have to post some uh photos for you guys of the batch uh after it takes place. I I was telling Gianna, I just wanted to be here already. Like we spent so much time planning and I just like, it's like, this is like Christmas. Like I just want to say wanted to be here. Yes. We wanted to be here. And also like Gianna wants it to be, I want it to be done also. Like I want to, I don't want to forget to check that box. Like, Oh, it's checked. Can if look at box, public work of art so from all angles. Check like done with bachelorette party. Check <laughs> like all done. Now I can, pick out decorations from here check so it's just another thing everyone planning a wedding just you're just like crippled with all the decisions that you have to make and so it's been really nice to just have Bianca be able to do this for me and also why she is taking the lead on this bachelorette kind of content (laughs) since you're the one that's been doing everything for the shindig um yeah no I've thoroughly enjoyed myself um question for you Gianna, when you think about a bachelorette party, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Like, are there certain iconic visuals or moments from pop culture that immediately kind of come to mind? Or like, because we talked about this when we started planning, we were like, what is the ideal bachelorette party for you? It's such a, like you said, it's it's part of the planning process, but it's not required to get married (laughs) over the past 15 years or whatever. The iconography of a bachelor and bachelorette party has been shaped by pop culture uh we definitely have the hangover as one of those kind of iconic bachelor party films then we got bridesmaids yeah we have them depicted in television shows cc's bachelorette party is an iconic episode yeah we have phoebe's bachelorette party with the iconic appearance of danny devito i feel like there are certain uh elements that we continually see visualized over and over but it's now that we're finally putting them in place it's been uh interesting to see how those manifested and and where those ideas really come up well why do you need a bachelorette party or why do we have to go on a trip or what does the trip look like or where are we going or what is involved because we've been ingrained to see those in other visuals yeah and it's interesting because i feel like every 
all of my visuals are like they're very modern right Mm -hmm. and we've talked about you know we can see like a, a history of wedding portraiture of bridal history of marriage like there's a lot of documentation about that but in terms of this concept of a bachelor and a bachelorette party those those all feel like very like modern day pieces of iconography I also Mm -hmm. think of the proposal and Sandra Bullock (laughs) and Betty White going to the like one bar in Alaska iconic oh that's a good one uh so I have a little history on uh bachelor and bachelorette parties that I will bring you it won't be too long uh A lovely article from Museum Hack actually will help us dive into the history of these parties from a very Western point of view. There is a, I was reading a few articles about different traditions across the globe, uh, where they come from in different cultures, how they manifest. And there is a book I found if any of you are getting married soon, if you're engaged, It's called Lucky in Love, Traditions, Customs, and Rituals to Personalize Your Wedding. It's from 2018, so uh, I haven't bought it. I'm not sure uh, necessarily all of the contents, but it looked really interesting. And in this book, there were different kind of cultural uh, backgrounds or traditions for you to implement in your wedding process. So I thought that was kind of cute. But this Museum Act article is from, uh, you know, largely the the Western marriage tradition world. So before we can discuss the lady version of a pre-wedding party, we have to discuss the, you know, kind of default bachelor party, which I'm excited to hear about Theban's bachelor party because I think it's just going to be really cute and nice. And sweet. <laughs> I'm like, I think he's going hiking. <laughs> like, that's all she wrote. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, So this actually looks back at the 5th century BCE when the Spartans held parties for their to-be-wed friends consisting of dinner and a toast. That sounds nice. In the 14th century, the term bachelor first comes into popular use as describing an unmarried man thanks to Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. In 1896, a stag party thrown by Herbert Seeley for his brother is raided by the police after hearing rumors that a nude belly dancer would be performing. And this is actually the grandson of P.T. Barnum. And this would feature a, quote, 17-course dinner, music, and drinking. Scantily clad dancing girls would hand out gifts for each of the guests, And Herbert Barnum Seeley drew up the guest list from this kind of who's who of society at the time. So then I was like, this is so interesting. All of a sudden, P.T. Barnum's grandson throws a bachelor party for his brother. And this becomes like big New York news. There's all these kind of historical archives about this one bachelor party. So then I discovered... This very interesting story about uh, the belly dancer who was at this party. And this seems to lead into the American tradition of kind of strip teases at these engagements. So the stage name of this particular belly dancer was Little Egypt. Obviously uh, not very PC, a problematic name and leading to the exoticism of 
other cultures, clearly. And this was actually the stage name for at least three popular belly dancers from the late 1800s through the early 1900s. And they had so many imitators that then this stage name kind of became synonymous with um, these dancers in general. And this kind of dance or striptease, belly dance, quote unquote, uh, was later named in society a hoochie coochie dance. And this is not, it's not like a, a strip show. It was a hoochie coochie dance. <laughs> so this particular dancer at P.T. Barnum's grandson's bachelor party uh, was named Ashea Wabe, but that's not, she had a stage name, she went by this name, but she was actually born a French-Canadian to the name Catherine Devine, so uh, do with that information what you will. Uh, this woman became front page news in 1896 after she danced at this now famous bachelor party. A rival promoter reported that she was going to be dancing nude at the party, and that's why it was actually raided by the police. So the raid precluded her from completing her dance, but she admitted to local authorities that she had been paid to dance and pose, quote unquote, in the altogether, which was a euphemism at the time for not having any clothes on. At the time, Teddy Roosevelt was then a New York uh, City police commissioner. He supported the police captain who conducted the raid and was sub subsequently vilified by the media of New York City for interfering with a party held by, quote-unquote, upstanding gentlemen. So people getting pissed at Teddy Roosevelt for supporting the police for raiding a bachelor party with dancing girls because they were supposed to be fine gentlemen of the time. And only later did the story come out that if she was able to complete her dance, she definitely would have been doing it in the nude and uh, would have done so had the police not showed up. So... They're going to have a full-on naked lady at this, at this party. The raid actually brought fame to Wabe. She was hired by the famed Broadway person Oscar Hammerstein and actually appeared as herself in a humorous parody of the this dinner. So this bachelor party worked its way to Broadway. Oscar Hammerstein hired her to play herself on stage. And then she might have been forgotten because this was like an obscure, I don't know, reference in a show on stage that she did. It was like a pop culture moment. And then people started to kind of capitalize off of that. Maybe. Like, so there was actually a photographer, Benjamin Falk, who took photographs of her and the other um dancers that worked with her that kind of went under this one stage name and so because of these preserved photographs by Benjamin Falk she has kind of stood the test of time and we have images of her which I thought was really fascinating this was super tragic though she passed away in 1908 and in her apartment at New York City, uh, she was found by her sister, apparently having died from gas asphyxiation. But after her death, 
it's said that she left an estate of over two hundred thousand dollars. Ooh. So your girl was making bank. I kind of feel as though we've had this recent fascination with stripper culture, and I feel like a lot mm-hmm. of that came out of like the Hustlers movie. And yeah. there's been a lot of women who work in like different kinds of entertainment who are like showing that part of their life, like a day in the life of being a stripper. I actually really like my job. Like mm-hmm. I actually make a lot of money doing this, so right. on and so forth. So I feel like there was a little bit of that, like, again, that pop culture moment and all of these, mm-hmm. you know, women dancers, strippers, other people that work in entertainment were kind of coming out and, you know, sharing their kind of moment when we had this pop cultural fascination mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. The last thing I'll note about the bachelor party timeline is that in 1922 was the first documented use of the term bachelor party in the Scottish publication Chambers Journal of Literature. So that's when we first see see this term in use. 40 years go by. And in the 1960s, women are holding bridal showers. So I was reading about bridal showers also at this time, like, oh, you're, you get gifts, you're there to be pampered, like all this stuff, uh, where I feel like bridal showers are kind of working their way out of culture. Um, yeah, totally. Because it's, it's like if you're going to have one or the other, like i rather have my bachelorette <laughs> party and just have a good time than like the stigma is that you like sit around and open gifts and like drink, right. you know, just like have like tea or Lemonade. like wine or like, <laughs> hmm, sounds great. But also I think part of that too is that with bridal showers, like that was something that you had like with your family and with people mm-hmm. like just moving more. Like my aunts and my cousins and my sisters don't live where I live. So it doesn't really make sense for, like, my aunts to fly out here twice just so we can, like, have a bridal shower. (laughs) Sure, yeah. But So at the time in the 60s, this was that moment where um, the women in the family, friends, prepare the bride for these kind of gender norms associated with the role of wife. That's what a bridal shower was. However, times were changing, and the sexual revolution was coming into fruition, And brides-to-be were embracing their sexuality and swapping bridal showers for rowdy bachelorette parties. And the term bachelorette party actually wouldn't be popular until the 1980s. So by the 80s and 90s, the bachelorette party had officially kind of cemented itself as a premarital tradition, culturally significant as a symbol of sexual freedom another step towards gender equality. And thinking about this, I just, I was really fascinated. I guess it just had never occurred to me that a bachelorette party's founding principles were in that sexual freedom from the the women's movement, because I feel as though there's some kind of backlash against a bachelorette party where women and brides don't want it to be this very over-sexual experience. There's kind of this, um, a a very non-celebratory weekend or or day or party where the phallus is kind of like that primary thing that you circle yourself around. Yeah, some people don't want it to be necessarily this like very like sexually like explicit happening. 
Right, which it doesn't have to. I think, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I'm very grateful that any bride, any person getting married can just celebrate however they want. And I think that's just, that's what a bachelor bachelorette, that's what a pre-wedding party should be. But I just thought it was so interesting that there's this kind of, um, I don't know, cultural backlash against like having a bunch of dicks at your party. And it's like this idea of the unsolicited dick pic, I think like people just don't want that, you know, in their face or to be celebrated. Like I, like I said, just be kind of uh, encompassing of the event. And, And I thought, all of that was just a a really interesting way that we've come to plan yours today. Yeah, I think that's all really interesting. I also think too with again, you don't think about how like recent in history these types of events are, but you're so right with that kind of like women's liberation movement, how something like this ties into that like wave of feminism so clearly. I think there's also now this interesting also fascination with male entertainers as well and we even actually you know obviously like magic mike came out before like hustlers but we have this very you know interesting like magic mike like wave and a lot of entertainment has come out of that and like are you excited for the new magic mike movie i did not know Gianna, i thought you were bringing this up because of the new movie that's coming no (laughs) I had no idea. I am so excited for the new Magic Mike. And it's really funny because I think both Andrew and I really want to go see it because Andrew loves Salma Hayek. Oh, is she in it? Yes. It's like, have you not seen like Channing Tatum and Salma Hayek doing all of this press for the movie? I have. I've (laughs) Apparently my phone isn't listening to me because no. Wow, you have to honestly. The trailer looks really good, but Andrew and I are both like, "Wow!" (laughs) I I had no idea, but I love it, and I'm also not surprised too, because I don't know. Like, obviously, like those movies did so well, I wouldn't be surprised that there was like another one. And also, the interesting thing about like Magic Mike was like there were a lot of they were so smart when they like made that movie because they were men of all different kind of like age groups, or, like two different age groups, like hot Andrew men. just texted me, are you talking about Magic Mike? We are indeed. I'm just saying that that movie like was made to cater towards like a, a larger demographic like of women also. And that's, yeah, and we, I just thought it was. We also just had the um, the Chippendales show on Hulu come out as well. Yeah, and that's something that we haven't talked about. <laughs> he said, "I hear you." Um, I also want to point you know, out like, too; it's difficult. Like even in my language right now, I'm saying like that is catered towards like a large group of women, and like obviously these movies cater to like all types of people with whatever sexual orientation. But I like I feel like we need to dive into like also there are those still those gendered aspects with the Bachelor. Right. And bachelorette trips, right? They seem very yeah, and hetero. Bachelor and bachelorette, yeah, they do. They they very much do. Like they still fall into a dichotomy, and you know mm-hmm. it's segmented into his and hers. But I think there's also a growing trend of people doing their pre-wedding parties together mm-hmm. as well. Like it, like a um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like a like a buddy trip or something or like a dual dual. bachelor bachelorette party yeah i wanted to do that actually i thought it would be really nice just to have like the whole kind of group 
together um Mm -hmm. but it was more so just kind of like a hard thing to coordinate with um so many people I don't know. It's gonna be nice to have a girls trip. I mean, I'd be totally happy to have Phoebe in there, but honestly, I'm really excited. <laughs> it would be great either way, but girls. no. I yeah, we love it. Girls only. Girls only. Girls roll, boys roll. With that, I think that's all she wrote for today. I think that's all she wrote. I'm all horned up and ready to go now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, ready for a horny horny time. Horny horny <laughs> time. We're ready to go. <laughs> just take you right now no um well i will uh, i will try to get over to the common once it warms up a tad and is not in the negative numbers here and i'll post some photos of the statue for you all of the uh monument on our story stay tuned for the next february episode coming out on the 21st we have a very special guest joining us it is a familiar face that you will be happy to hear and see again as always you can email us at artpoptalk at gmail.com follow us on social media at artpoptalk we'll post updates from the batch party and um with that Gianna, I think we'll talk to everyone in two Tuesdays. Bye, everyone. Bye. Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner, and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.